0: This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcast every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 on KUCI, 88.9 FM, Irvine, California. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. Our guest today, Air America radio host Laura Flanders, believes there are no such things as red and blue states. In her new book, Blue Grit: True Democrats Take Back Politics from the Politicians, she discovers progressive change everywhere in the US, and also a simple truth: people don't vote for the GOP because Republicans represent their interests. They vote Republican because Democrats barely feel a team. Flanders hosts her own weekly radio show on Air America, She's also the author of Bushwoman, How They Won the White House for Their Man, and Real Majority, Media Minority, The Cost of Sidelining Women in Reporting. Laura Flanders, welcome to Weekly Signals.
1: Oh, it's great to be with you, Nathan.
0: Well, it's great to have you on. I'm here with uh, Mike Casper. We'll be shooting questions at you. How are you today?
1: I'm all right. How about
0: you? I'm, I'm doing uh, very well. I'm a grandfather today. My, Congratulations. My little baby boy just popped out about an hour ago. Yeah. So, oh, my goodness. Yeah. I can't believe we're on the radio. What yeah. This is, is this a guy, a trooper or, or what? A well, trooper. What's his what, name? Uh, John Michael Weber.
1: Well, welcome to the world, John Michael Weber. Um <laughs> right.
0: uh, So tell me, love, we've been talking about the Democrats last week voting uh, or not voting. Uh, about for the uh, Iraq Appropriations Bill, and can you tell me uh, why is it that they're so wimpy? Why can't they find a spine and uh, and oppose what Bush is doing with a very unpopular war?
1: Well, I can't ask you that question because I'm not in their heads, but <sighs> I'll tell you that I think that they're going to pay heavily for what they did and didn't do last weekend. I mean, I think that that was really sending a shocking message. I mean, more or less shocking to several to, to a variety of people. Um, To the base, those voters who poured their hearts and souls out into the last congressional races to win a majority for Democrats in the House and in the Senate, on the premise and in the hope and expectation that that would bring a change in approach to the war and not just re- you know, rhetoric but real action, I think they sent a dreadful message uh, back to the base. And I, according you know, my book, in my book, I, I lay out my belief that, I be- that elections, in my view, are kind of won or lost on the basis of how passionate the base feels. So I think that's a, a, a fatal mistake for the Democrats.
2: Ahead, well, I just heard uh, this morning uh, you can you may have heard it also that Cindy Sheehan who is uh, as everyone knows was one of the leading um, voices of people who were opposed to the war in Iraq has uh, apparently offered a sort of a letter of resignation. She's basically taking herself out because of a lot of it sounds like some personal reasons but also I think in disgust for what the Democrats did last week.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it was in disgust at that, but I think what she actually says is that she is disgusted by the uh, treatment she's now been receiving from the peace movement and from the left and from Democrats for their you know bringing the same criticism she has of Republicans to bear on Democrats in congress she says look i wasn't I'm not in this uh, to support one party over another and everybody I was the darling of the peace movement when I criticized the Republicans, and as soon as I turned my fire on the Democrats, I suddenly become this attention seeking whore I think is the language she used um that's what she's hearing from people that she thought were on her side i mean there's no question um you know. The political is personal, and she has been fueled by the personal. She's been um, driven to take political stands because of how personally she feels about this war. And eventually, the treatment that she has been getting has gotten too much for her. Um, she's not going to stop working against the war, she says, but she's not going to be the public face, because enough is enough of how much grief she's getting. It was one thing to get it from Bill O'Reilly, but to start getting it from her own side, uh, from what I'm reading in that letter, hurts too much. She'll be my guest on Air America tonight, so with any luck, we'll hear a little bit more.
2: Oh, well, good. Well, looking forward to hearing that.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm I'm sad about the whole thing, frankly, but... Um, I look forward to hearing from her voice, from her mouth, because we know that nothing we hear in the media about what she says is typically true. But I I think this is, you know... This is deep stuff, Nathan. And and I I know as a new grandfather, your feelings are probably right out there. You know, we all want to change this world for the better. We want to stop this war. And it's one thing when our, um, you know, opponents, our political opponents, namely Republicans, are um, taking uh, the stand that they're taking. But when our own side or the people that want our vote, let's put it that way, that expect us to vote for them, Um, say they're going to do one thing and then do another, I I think it really gets you in your heart and soul. And I think that that's going to have an effect this coming year.
0: Now, uh, what would you suggest that the Democrats do or what should we do? Let me rephrase that, too. Do you think a third party has a chance this time? Well, I don't
1: think they do at the presidential level, because our electoral system is rigged. I mean, it's not by an accident that uh, we have a two-party political system. In the late 19th century, the two biggest parties uh, made sure that it was that way, by making life almost impossible for the populists of uh, that era, and that's the way it's remained. We have a uh, massive change to make of our system, I think, for a third-party presidential candidate to have a shot. We know that at the local level, third parties are finding success at uh, uh, the city, even state, electoral Level, and I think that that is always a, a healthy development to give Democrats some uh, a challenge from the left. Uh, but getting realistic, I mean, I think that in terms of the presidential race, um, we need to send a message to those Democrats that are seeking for our votes this. Coming election year, that uh, this is unacceptable to us. That, that their cave in on the Bush appropriations for Iraq uh, really drew a line in the sand. That they are now no longer uh, only uh, in opposition to the Republicans; they're in opposition to their own base. They were more frightened, it seemed to me, of uh, bad press in Washington than they were of more deaths in Iraq. And, and that is a message we've got to turn around. That that is unacceptable to us, the voters. I write in the book that you know it, it was it was progressive activists at the base level organized around issues they cared about and candidates that moved them and people they could believe in that made the difference in no sex. Uh It's what makes the difference every election, and the Republicans have known that for years. That's why they actually treat their base with a certain amount of respect. Uh, on the Democratic side, there's been this taking for granted for granted of, of base voters, and at the same time, a complete failure to um, build up base organizations of their own. So every four years they depend on us, for progressive activists and grassroots organizations, to fill that vacuum. Um, I think those organizations have a responsibility at this point to figure out a way to send a message, you listen to us or else.
2: Right. We're speaking with Laura Flanders. The book is Blue Grit, True Democrats Take Back Politics from Politicians.
0: You talked about uh, the Democrats' base organizations and how they aren't uh, supporting them. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because there's some things in your book that really kind of shocked me about how how little the Democrats are doing with their uh, with their. Party base.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, it's sort of like le- lepers v. lovers, I say. On the right, you've got a kind of lover relationship with the groups at their margins, the religious right, the libertarian right. After the um, Perot 3rd um, party candidacy of uh, 1992, you saw the Republicans in Congress, led by Newt Gingrich in '94, immediately rushed to try to win those voters back. Uh, on the uh, Republican side, there's a kind of, you know, as I said, a sort of seduction routine that goes on a lot of uh, whispering sweet nothings, inviting out to dinner, kissing of the ring of uh, the people at the margins of the party. Big promises are made. And sometimes, as we've seen recently in the Supreme Court, uh, delivered on. On the Democratic side, it's very different. They tend to pretend that those um, margin movements don't exist. I'm thinking of the fair trade movement or, at the start, the movement against the war in Iraq. Uh, when they do, except they Exist, they tend to uh, keep those movements at a distance, as if you know they were sort of carriers of some dreadful contagious disease. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's changed slightly, I think, in two two thousand six on the question of fair trade and uh, the war in Iraq. But as we can see, they still believe they can, as it were, disrespect that base and get away with it. Uh, the question is why.
2: And and <laughs> why is it because the they don't have money is there is a is a money factor into, in all of this because politics is really driven so much today by how much money you have
1: well i think frankly what is what's what's been the case on the right is that those marginalized organizations those marginal groups the religious right the nra the libertarian right have organized around elections and have put forward their own candidates of created their own uh, threat to the Republicans at the base level, at the state level. They've put up primary challenges. They've organized within the party structure. And on the Democratic side, at the flanks, movement groups have tended to kind of eschew the whole electoral political arena and decided to do movement politics instead. And, you know, who can blame them? They, they don't believe they're going to get changed through uh, electoral politics, through voting, through uh, candidates running for office. So they just bail on the whole arena. I I believe that's changing, and that's what I write in my yeah, book, yeah. that I believe that there is a sort of tide of um, progressive activism rising that is realizing, wow, we can organize the biggest demonstration in the, the world has ever seen, as we did in February of 2003, February 15th, and still not stop a war if our legislators aren't listening to us, if they don't give a, a fig what we think. Um, it doesn't do us any good to be protesting on the Capitol steps. So from coast to coast, what I'm finding is those very same people who maybe 10 years ago were saying, well, to heck with electoral politics, are saying, you know what? like it or lump, it, we've got to get involved. And they're not just voting. They're not just registering people to vote. They're running candidates. And I think we're going to see, we saw in 2006, um, primary races that were alive and kicking for the first time in parts of the country that nobody expected uh, Democrats to face a fight. And I think we're going to see that again in 2008, because a lot of those activists watched what happened last week and said, you know what? It's not enough to try to send messages to these legislators. We have to change the face of Congress, and we have to get these new people in and these folks
2: out. Well, Laura Flanders, let, talk a little bit about 2006 and also some of the examples that you cite in your book. But two of the big surprises for me were um, the Senate race in, in Virginia and in Montana. Yep. Those certainly were two of the, the great surprises on that night. I remember watching way late into the evening, and those things weren't decided until very, very, very late, and by a mar- very small Majority, But at the same time, they came out on the right side, didn't they?
1: Well, they did. and At the same time, both of those candidates, I hate to tell you, voted the wrong way on that warrant appropriation oh. bill last week. Both uh, Jim Webb and John Testa voted for giving Bush what he wanted, uh-huh. which was, in Testa's case, less so for, my, for me in, in Webb's case, but in Testa's case, was a, a, a surprise I thought Tester would hold, hang tough, but he didn't, and I think that's partly because he's under a lot of pressure. His uh, fellow senator from uh, Montana, Max Baucus, is one of the more conservative, one of the most conservative uh, Democrats uh, you're going to find he, on the um, on the D.C. front. You know that Tester was up against uh, every kind of uh, challenge from the the media, um, putting him under sharp glare of, you know, is he going to be seen to be abandoning the troops? I was shouting. As loud as I could, this wasn 't an abandon the troops issue. This was a sacrifice the troops issue yeah, if, yeah, exactly. if you agree uh, to send more um, you know m- more men and women to die uh, but you know testa didn 't didn 't do the right thing on last week, and I want to hear from uh, Montanans what they make of that and, and what they 're going to be uh, what message they 're going to be bringing to him i mean he 's the guy who ran on um, repealing the Patriot act. he said he wouldn 't just reform it he 'd repeal it given a chance he 's the guy that ran against the uh Clinton uh, um trade uh policy he ran against nafta and against um the so-called you know corporate or structured so-called free trade mm-hmm. um this is a man for organic fuels biofuels for um uh, reform of our food and trade policy um but he wasn't strong enough on the war and and i don't know what's going to i don't know what's going to change in montana that will um, change that picture, but I, I believe something will because the um, Montana electorate that turned out for him were very concerned about getting their particularly their national guard home, and I think he 'll hear from them about that, but you know the the good news has been in the last few years, that races like that one, Tester was not supported by the um, Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee. They supported uh, a different candidate in the primary who so they thought could raise more money. It was grassroots support that brought Montanans Tester as opposed to his opponent. And the, the, you know, the, the Senate Campaign Committee had to go along. The same with Jim Webb. He was a candidate made viable by net roots activists at a time when the uh, Democratic Senate Campaign Committee didn't think he had a chance. So, you know, looking at the election of these two guys, their election was made possible by grassroots. Uh, now, those grassroots have to make themselves heard to those folks. Uh, we got you where you are today. Now you can't just, uh, just you know, shove us to the curb.
2: So, are you, are you seeing? Let's go, let's talk a little, a little more about the, some of the examples that you cite in in your book, uh, Blue Grit, of people that are sort of taking on uh, the establishment and 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 progressives were winning. Is there one in particular
0: that really stands out to you as a success story?
1: Well, that- you know, there are a lot. I mean, one is the one of the sort of fun characters in the book is Rocky Anderson, the mayor of Salt Lake City. Mm-hmm. I mean, talk about blue and red states. Uh, mm-hmm. Those electoral college maps really do mess with our heads. Who would think that the biggest city in the reddest state of the union, Utah, would be headed up by one of the more progressive mayors you're ever going to find? Rocky Anderson is, you know, pro-gay marriage uh, the Kyoto Protocols. When Bush comes to town, he greets him, not with a fancy dinner at Town Hall, but with a massive anti-war demonstration.
2: Calling Um, for his impeachment, I
1: believe. And calls for his impeachment, exactly. Uh, I mean, this is uh, the classic example of, you know, there are progressive blue dots all across the map that our national media don't uh, bring to our attention, and frankly, the National Democrats don't pay much attention to, even though in a city like Salt Lake City, Utah, you've got a mayor who has lot to teach about how do you win over opponents, how do you work with people who disagree with you, how do you model progressive politics in a way that keeps um, the image of good government alive, even in a state where you've got a lot of right-wing rhetoric um, talking about the evils of government and the evils of um, democratic government in particular. So, you know, one of the parts of my book is to, one of the messages of my book is to try to say, don't write anywhere off. Uh, this is a yeah. the Democratic Party strategy has been a disaster to write off about a third of the states. Uh, I'm very supportive of Howard Dean's 50-state program that says, you know, for the Democrats to even field a team, for the Democrats to even have a chance, uh, even at the level of keeping their policies alive, let alone keeping their politicians elected, um, they've got to be active in all 50 states. It's um, just a, you know, self-sabotage routine uh, to give up. And hand whole parts of the country over to the republican base that 's a way to advance policy as well as advance a majority in congress and it doesn't serve anyone's interest but the right so that's one of the the big lessons of my research around the country and then another one was, as I said, this kind of rising tide of local activism where you find people like uh well in nevada in salt Lake, in in uh, las Vegas I, I was very taken with um Maggie Carlton who's day job is as a a cafeteria worker in the Treasure Island Casino in Las Vegas' strip. And then her part-time job is as a state senator. She's in her third term. She's somebody who was a culinary workers' union shop steward who decided, yeah, I could spend my time trying to educate legislators, or I could be a legislator. And she's been one for close to 10 years now. So those are the kinds of stories that i think are um indicative of what's happening around the country yeah. that we don't hear much about.
2: Well it's good to hear. We we work broadcasting to you, uh we're coming to you from Orange County and we we know exactly what you're talking about in the sense that uh for many many years the democratic party here uh barely as you put it barely fielded a, a team and uh my contention has always been that people aren't voting for repub um, they vote when they vote for a democrat it seems that they're voting against the republicans more than they're voting for the democrat because they don't really know what much about the democratic party and and uh, it is a real problem it's a real issue that i think the democrats Uh, As you said, Howard Dean is on the right track. Well, I was
1: shocked. I mean, after I spent election night 2004 sort of trying to cheer up my listeners at Air America Radio, who Mm -hmm. were a very Democratic voting bunch. And for them, you know, the sky had just fallen in. The country was awash in conservative values as far as the the media were concerned. And I had so many people calling in saying that they were going to immigrate to Canada that finally some Vancouver listener called in and said, wait a minute, you do know you need a visa to come here. (laughs) You know, what I set out to find out and what people can find in the book, is the answer to the question, is the country really that awash in conservatism or is it simply that somebody's not doing politics right? Mm-hmm. And what I found frankly, and again the details are in the book, you can and read the, the numbers there, but um, what I found was frankly, you know, that in most parts of the country the Democratic Party was in a shambles, even in so-called blue states or in very hotly contested states like Nevada that had been a battleground for the last two presidential races, there was nothing resembling a really well functioning well resourced uh, state party in evidence mm-hmm. no functioning website to speak of no ele- not no um, computerized voting role, no full-time communications director I mean when the forty state parties were were surveyed by a group called grassroots Democrats after the election of o four they found that sixty six percent of state parties had no full-time communications director. Nobody to put out the Democratic point of view during the legislature. No computerized voter roll. No functioning website. Um, This is just an unacceptable way to run an organization. And again, I think there is a movement for change. And in California, I understand that the uh, state Democratic Party convention last month, you had people calling for, is it a 58-county plan to kind of model what Dean has done at the the national level, at the state level. So there aren't uh, counties that haven't ever seen a Democrat knock on their door. That's just not the. That's just that isn't a state of affairs that's allowed to continue.
2: Yeah, I, the the Republicans got a big leg up with Richard Vigory in the in the eighties, and 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 they the, sort of the bringing it up to us more of a a business model uh, to run the political party, and but at the same time, though, there's. Nothing preventing the Democrats no, from uh, doing that, the same. No, there isn't. And I think it's important to, to to essentially adopt, adapt, and improve. If the, the Democrats can do that and, well, they, the ha- and they have I the winning to... message, they really have the winning message for most well, people.
1: Well, the irony is, I spoke to Richard Vigory for my book and yeah, he I said, know. you know, we learned yeah. everything we did from you. Okay. <laughs> Not from me personally, but <laughs> yeah. from the left and, in fact, the far left. They learned from the Communist Party that you have to build cells. Yeah where people have group loyalty, and then you spread that, um, as it were, sort of in a contagion, uh, building on the passion of a few to infect, as it were, or, you know, inspire, let's say, to use better yeah. rhetoric. Um the many, and that's how the, you know, I think that we often look at the right. People on the left look at the right and see this top-down monolith. And sure, there's a lot of power and money that goes from the top down, but there's also a healthy respect for building at the bottom up, uh, servicing the members, servicing the ground troops, making sure that people do feel that they're getting something back for their engagement so that, you know, the religious right churches don't just lecture on a Sunday. They also provide, you know, soup kitchens and marriage counseling and free child care. And I found that the focus on the family, the religious right organization, will actually throw a birthday party for your kid in the church for free. Uh, I mean, what working parent doesn't want that? So, I mean, I think that we need to take a new look at the right and think about how have they actually built this structure, this sort of social network that mobilizes every four years uh, for Republican candidates. For them, it's less about the candidate running at the top of the ticket, more about those relationships at the base. The Democrats have relied on charisma, and Bill Clinton was a very bad sort of example of exactly that. The charisma at the top will carry the country. It doesn't work that way yeah. uh, when you don't have a, a, a charismatic candidate.
2: Yes. Well, if you want to know more about how the Democrats can can uh, succeed, succeed, <laughs> exactly. Thank you. Uh, and, uh, and 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 read about some inspirational stories. The book is Blue Grit, The True Democrats Take Back Politics from the Politicians. Laura Flanders, thank you for joining us here on uh, Weekly Signals.
1: Well, thanks for having me, and congratulations again.
0: To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit NathanCallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan.
2: And I'm Mike Kaspar, and this is Weekly Signals.